His Excellency, United Nations Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, Vice Chancellor of the University of Sydney, Dr. Michael Spence, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, good morning. My name is Matthias Yeo, and I'm a final year commerce student with the Business School. Together with five of my outstanding colleagues from various faculties, I represented the university at the 2011 Global Model United Nations Conference in South Korea. It gives me great pleasure to welcome His Excellency Ban Ki-moon on behalf of all students at the University of Sydney. A round of applause for the United Nations Secretary General, please. I now invite Uncle Charles Chika Madden, an elder from the Gadigal land, on stage for the Welcome to Country. Uncle Madden, please. Good. Thank you, Matthew. My name is uh, Charles Madden, known around the inner city here as Chika, and I'm from Gattaca land, Aboriginal land. I'd like to take this opportunity this morning to extend a warm and sincere welcome to all my Aboriginal brothers and sisters, non-Aboriginal brothers and sisters, welcome to Gattaca land. Aboriginal land, the Gattaca clan is one of 29 that makes up the Eora Nation. And the Eora Nation is bordered by three distinctive landmarks. We have the Orkesbury River of the north, the Peen to the west, and the Georges River to the south. Those three rivers form the boundaries of the Eora Nation. I've lived in and around the city area for many, many years. Especially around the Redfern, Alexandria, Waterloo area. I'm a director with the Aboriginal Medical Service at Redfern and also a director with the Metropolitan Local Aboriginal Land Council. Folks, if you've travelled across this great city of ours this morning, the state, or this great country, welcome to Gattaca land. For any brothers and sisters from the Torres Strait, or have travelled here from far away across the seas, a warm and sincere welcome to Gattaca land. Enjoy the morning, and have a safe and trouble-free trip home. Once again, welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Uncle Madden. We will now have an acknowledgement of country with a performance by the Freeman Dancers. Led by Talara Freeman, a student in the Faculty of Education and Social Work at the University of Sydney, the Freeman dancers have been performing together for the past 10 years at public and private functions in New South Wales, the Northern Territory, and overseas. Together, Talara with Carl Freeman and Mitch Monroe will be performing for you today. They are performing a clearing dance, which clears bad energy from this event and welcomes good energy. Following this, they will perform a welcome creation dance. Please give a round of applause to the Freeman dancers.
Hello everybody and good morning. My name's Kyle Freeman. Um, we are the Freeman Dancers. Before we go on with any of our dancers, I'd just like to pay my respect and acknowledge to um, all of the elders past and present to this land, all of the ancestors past and present to this land, and I'd also like to say thank you for inviting us here today to letting us dance on this land, as we are actually from Jamilaroi and also Radri. These first two dances we're going to be doing now are sung in Miradri language, passed down to me, my my uncle Wayne Krauss. These is um, a clearing dance to clear away all bad energies and bad spirits and letting good energy and good spirits for today's ceremony. <laughs> The next dance that we have now for you to finish up is a, um, a show-off dance to show off all, all of our fancy moves and that. Uh, after ceremony, sometimes we pick up a wife or a husband, but today we're using it as a, as a welcome dance to welcome you. Thank you. Once again, we are the Freeman Dancers. On the end, my sister, Talara Freeman. In the middle, my brother-in-law, Mitchell Munro. And I'm Kyle Freeman. Thank you. Thank you, Freeman Dancers, for an excellent performance. I will now invite Vice-Chancellor of the University of Sydney, Dr. Michael Spence, to deliver his address. Dr. Michael Spence, please. Thank you very much. And I'd like to begin by acknowledging how proud we are at the University of Sydney 
that people have been teaching and learning on this land for tens of thousands of years. And we invite all Australians to join with us in celebrating the Indigenous and the non-Indigenous cultures of this remarkable country. Your Excellency, Mrs. Barn, it is terrific to welcome you to the university today, a really great privilege to welcome you to this, your only public official visit on this particular trip to Australia. And we think that it was smart of you to choose the University of Sydney as a venue. And we think that for a number of reasons. One, I suppose, less important and one more. The less important is that we share a deep history with the United Nations. Of course, it was an alumnus of the University of Sydney, Herbert Evatt, who was president of the United Nations General Assembly at the time of the adoption of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and was one of the architects of that declaration. It was an alumna of the University of Sydney, Jesse Street, who was responsible for the affirmation in the preamble to the Charter for the UN of the equal rights of women an issue I know, Your Excellency, that is particularly dear to your own heart. And we've had alumni and members of the university involved in the work of the United Nations over its 150 years history. Most recently, Robert Hill, the um, former Australian uh, ambassador to the United Nations, now works at the United States Study Centre. So we're family in that sense. But we're family in a much deeper sense we believe that we share much of the DNA of the United Nations in at least two ways. The first is we are deeply committed to a global outlook. We are a university of 50,000 students of whom 11,000 come to us from overseas from 130 different countries. We are the university that is fifth in the world for research collaborations with Chinese institutions that is deeply engaged in the work of our region and the wider world. But it's not just that we're global in outlook. We have a foundational commitment to community service. When this place was founded, it was founded with a radical agenda. It was founded as the first university in the world, provided you're a man, to admit you on the basis of academic merit alone and not on the basis of some religious or property test. It was the first university we believe in the world, once women were admitted in 1881, to admit them on an equal basis with men, to have them there in the dissecting room in medicine at a time at which people thought that was scandalous. And we're committed to maintaining that tradition of social service by bringing the resources of the university together to address key problems that I know are of concern to the United Nations at the moment. So we're spending almost half a billion dollars in the study of obesity, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease. And in fact, it was a professor of the University of Sydney who wrote the Global Action Plan for Diabetes. And I know that the United Nations is having later in September a high-level meeting on this topic. We're committed to capacity building in China and have over 130 academics not studying China, but working with China, particularly in areas of practical concern, such as public health. We have a major university initiative in food security and sustainability. We're committed to the welfare of First Peoples and have appointed to the most senior position for an indigenous um, educational leader in Australia, our Deputy Vice-Chancellor, Shane Houston. 
We have a Masters in Human Rights and Democratization that's about building the kinds of values in our region that I know um, you have been promoting on this trip to the South Pacific. So it's not just that we're international in outlook, but we think we share the DNA of the United Nations. And I have to say, Your Excellency, that in that, if I may be presumpt so presumptuous as to say, I think we share your DNA. I have heard you speak twice this year so far, and it is deeply inspiring. Your personal commitment to social service, your personal commitment to the Millennium Goals, and to seeing a world develop that is fairer for everyone is deeply humbling. For those of you who don't know um, Matt, His Excellency's story, and I'm sure there are only few of you, um, his own experience was of growing up in war-torn Korea. And so he's seen the very greatest challenges that face the international community firsthand. And in fact, it was that experience that inspired him to a life of public service. Ban Ki-moon served for 37 years in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in the Republic of Korea, including posties, postings to New Delhi, to Washington and Vienna, as well as roles including foreign policy advisor to the president and chief national security advisor. He was chairman of the preparatory commission for the comprehensive nuclear test ban treaty organization and chef de cabinet during the Republic of Korea's 2001-2002 presidency of the UN General Assembly. He was the minister for foreign affairs and trade at the time that he was elected secretary general of the United Nations. And since he took office, he's brought a new focus to the organization's work in seeking collective solutions to climate change and in empowering women. 40% of senior leadership positions in the United Nations are now held by women. He's built greater support for the United Nations Millennium Development Goals and has strengthened the United Nations capacity to respond to the need for peace organizations in regions and for maintaining stability. Ladies and gentlemen, you are in for a treat. You are in for a treat to hearing the passionate hope that this man has for the world. As with the United Nations, he and I hope we address some of the very real challenges that now face us. Could you join with me in welcoming His Excellency Ban Ki-moon? Thank you, uh, Vice Chancellor Michael Spence, for your very kind introduction. Uh, distinguished guests, distinguished faculty members, dear students, Mr. Charles Madden, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your warm welcome uh, today. It's a great honor and pleasure uh, for me to address the leaders of our future who will bear responsibility to make this world better for all. The moment I stepped into this campus of this university, I realized that this is the university, not only of a his historical tradition of 150 years, but this is the place, the educational institution, where they produce the future leaders of our world. 
as the Secretary General of the United Nations, I deeply appreciate uh, your commitment to work together with the United Nations. Ladies and gentlemen, let me begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora nation. I want to thank all of you for accommodating my visit. I was scheduled to be here a few days earlier, but as you know, I'm not able to control my own schedule. Sometimes I have to run to the place of a conflict or place of importance. I was in Paris on September 1st to attend this summit meeting on Libya. That is why I had to change this schedule. Thank you very much for your understanding and flexibility to accommodate uh, my situation. Because of that, you should know that uh, I'm visiting Australia twice in a week. This is the first time since the last uh, 10 years, since my predecessor visited 10 years ago. Then for me, first visit as a Secretary General, but now I'm making second visit to Australia in just two weeks. I'm wrapping up uh, an amazing journey that has taken me throughout the region, from Canberra to the Solomon Islands, the Kiribati, Auckland, Sydney, then Canberra, and Sydney back, then New York. This is where I took part in the Pacific Islands Forum. It was the first time that United Nations Secretary General attended the Pacific Island Leaders Forum in just 40 years. In Auckland, where the Rugby World Cup will open tomorrow, I pointed out that there are more parallels than one might think uh, between rugby and diplomacy. In rugby, you lose your teeth. <laughs> the diplomacy, in diplomacy, you lose your face. <laughs> in diplomacy, some say success is when rivals break bread. But in rugby, some say success is when rivals break their bones. And in diplomacy, you have a superpowers battling each other for global dominance. In rugby, you have the Wallabies and the All Blacks. I'm a seasoned diplomat, thus I'm not able to say anything in support of anything, but I wish <laughs> you all the best. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, this is the last full day of my trip. I can think of no better place to spend it than with all of you. The young people of Australia, the future of Australia and future of the world. That is why I regard this opportunity as a Secretary General as very, very important. Australia is an integral part of the United Nations. You are a founding member of the United Nations, the first president of the Security Council. Norman Makin, Makin was an Australian. And your country's commitment goes back even further. In many ways, it starts right here in this university. One of the drafters of the United Nations Charter was a graduate 
of the University of Sydney, Herbert Doc Evatt. He went on to become the president of the third session of the United Nations General Assembly in 1948. That is the year when Universal Declaration of the Human Rights was proclaimed. So we owe a great deal for his visionary leadership and commitment. And we owe a great deal to such a visionary Australian. Doc Evatt was a global champion for advancing the rights and interests of small, smaller nations and speaking up for social justice. Article 56 of the United Nations Charter, uh, which underscores economic and social development and human rights bears his distinct imprint. Thanks to his work, it is known as the Australian Pledge. Through the years, Australia has continued to advance our common values across many parts of the world. You have helped diffuse tensions in the region, including Timor-Leste, Bougainville, and the Solomon Islands through Ramsey Initiative. You are the first country to contribute troops to the United Nations peacekeeping mission. Ever since, your troops, your young men and women keeping peace, have served the cause of peace from Cambodia to Cyprus and to Afghanistan. And Australia has been a pivotal force on many of the leading issues of our age, tackling global poverty, advancing millennium development goals, promoting disarmament, and the world free of nuclear weapons. These 21st century challenges are too big for any country or region to solve alone. The world is too connected. Our fates too are intertwined. We need each other. Australia gets it. Your leadership in the region around the world shows that. My sense from my travels is that people around the world get it too. And they expect leaders to speak out and to work together. To solve problems, to build a common ground, and to provide them, as Australians put it so well, a fair go in life. A fair go in life. I know there is a lot of competing noise out there. In times of great transition, in moments of dramatic change, there is no shortage of things to be anxious about. A shaky global economy, rising intolerance, unrest, wars, acts of terrorism. But let me tell you where I come from. I grew up, with, I grew up in Korea, in poverty and war of Korea. The United Nations saved my country and my people. As a Korean citizen, I'd like to express my most profound thanks to very brave, courageous, young Australians who came to Korea and by paying their ultimate prices, by defending 
freedom and liberty of Korea, Korean Peninsula. Without your sacrifice, I would not be able to stand as I am not doing before you. And I thank you very much for your such a strong commitment. I know the future belongs to those who act together to advance our common values. There is both the opportunity and obligation that faces us today. Let's start with what is in the news. As you know, my speech was rescheduled because of the conference on future of Libya. Therefore, let me say a little bit about uh, Libya. Across North Africa and beyond, a revolution of hope was taken hold. The people of Libya and beyond taken great risks to assert their basic freedoms and human rights. Now they need us to support these democratic transitions. I want to thank Australia for being one of the world's leading donors of the humanitarian assistance to the people of Libya. The transition process will move it at different speeds in different places, but we cannot slip it into reverse. That is why United Nations will keep working to help the Libyan people realize their legitimate aspiration to have a better future, well-being, human rights, and participatory democracy. Libya was an instance of the world acting together to protect people when their government could not and would not it was an example of what we call the responsibility to protect. This principle of responsibility to, to protect, which you must have seen in the media as R2P, response, responsibility to protect, is the one on which the leaders of the world agreed in 2005 World Summit meeting at the United Nations. They decided that when a country is not capable to protect their own people from genocide, crimes against humanity, ethnic cleansing, and war crimes, that when a leader is not willing, is not willing to protect their own people, as we have seen in Libya, in Syria. Of course, the Syrian, on Syrian case, we have not been able to take any action unfortunately. But in Libya, the Security Council has taken swift and decisive action by taking Resolution 1970 and 1973, by establishing rule, this no-fly zone, by engaging in a military operation. Around the world, we are making, working to make that principle real and operational. When I was running for this job as a campaign a candidate, I came to Australia and I explained to the leadership of Australia when and if I am elected as a Secretary General of the United Nations, I will make this principle of responsibility to protect into 
and operational one. That is what I'm doing and we have been doing. For the first time, the Security Council and Human Rights Council have invoked this principle. That is quite encouraging one. In Syria, I have repeatedly urged President Assad to end the excessive and lethal use of force by his security forces against his own people, Syrian people, and to engage in meaningful, inclusive dialogue by taking bold political reform before it is too late. Yet the violent operation against the civilians, including mass arrest and killing, continues. When the former president, Bagbo of Cote d'Ivoire, tried to steal an election through bloodshed earlier this year, the United Nations stepped up and stopped it. We sent a clear message across the region that democracy must be upheld. The fundamental principle of democracy must be restored and upheld, and the voice of the people must be heard. That happened, and we are very proud that now freely democratically elected person is now leading that country. The international community must do its part to protect the people threatened with extreme violence for exercising basic rights. Ladies and gentlemen, in the end, around the world, sustainable peace cannot be maintained without sustainable development. Next month, on the 31st of October, the seven billionth child of our world will be born. I'm not sure whether we have to celebrate it or we have to be concerned. For that child and for all of us, we must keep working to fight poverty, create decent jobs, and provide dignified life while preserving the planet that sustains us. That is why I have said that the Sustainable Development Agenda is the agenda of the 21st century. That is going to be the top priority of the United Nations. Above all, that means connecting the dots between challenges which we have been addressing separately, including climate change, food crisis, water scarcity, energy shortages, gender equality, gender empowerment, and global health, including non-communicable diseases. On the surface, these issues might seem like distinct issues, but they are linked, very closely linked. Therefore, one solution to any of these may find solutions to many, if not all. That is what we call sustainable development. In Korea, we have a proverb saying that uh, however many beautiful beads you may have in your hands, 
But if they are not uh, threaded, then you can never make a necklace with these uh, beads. This is why we have to use a thread to link all these challenging issues. Tragically, today we see many examples where we fail to do that early enough or fast enough. Look no further than the crisis in the Horn of Africa. Conflict, high food price, long spell of drought have left 12 million people at risk. And I thank again Prime Minister Gillard, Australian government, to have contributed generously for those people in Horn of Africa. As Australia knows too well, extreme weather events such as the increased floods, rains, and droughts continue to grow more frequent and intense as climate change accelerates. They not only devastate the lives, but wipe out infrastructure, institutions, and budgets. From the Horn of Africa to Western Europe, from Pakistan to Pacific Islands, we see the urgency for action. Competition between communities and countries to scarce resources, especially water, is increasing. Environmental migrants are starting to reshape the human geography of the planet. This will only increase as sea levels rise and deserts advance. I know once again there are the skeptics, those who say climate change is not real. But the facts are clear. The science has made it plainly clear. Global greenhouse gas is increasing. Billions of people are suffering today from climate change, and climate change is very real. For those who are skeptical, who are in doubt about climate change, I invite them to visit Kiribati and Solomon Island, where I was. Look into the eyes of uh, villagers who are living in Kiribati and those small Pacific islands. One of the most touching event experience for me, meeting in a group like a town hall meeting with the villagers inundated by high sea tide. One boy was asking me, what can you do? What United Nations can do? I'm afraid to go to bed every night because I do not know what will happen. Look at the case of the parents who have to guard, to have to be vigilant against any possible sea, high sea tide may affect their, their homes. Ladies and gentlemen, in this struggle, there is one resource that is scariest, scariest of all. That's time. Time is running out, and it is high time to act. Watching this high tide standing on the shore of Kiribati, I said high tide shows it's a high time to act. We are running 
out of time. By 2050, the population will reach 9 billion. That is a 50% increase compared with 2000. By that time, we will have to reduce, we must reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 50%. This is what I call 50-50-50 challenge. By that time, 7 billion people out of 9 billion will live somewhere in the cities, like in Sydney. And this will create a huge problem through this urbanization, massive urbanization. We have to prepare uh, before we are affected by these uh, challenges. Climate change is showing that the old mother is not only dated, it is even dangerous. We cannot burn our way to the future. The skeptics may say, why bother? No one else is acting on, the, on this challenge. Why should we? Why should we wait? But scores of the countries are heading down a lower carbon path because they know it is good there, good for their economies and good for the health and well-being of their people. Let me cite some examples. What I am trying to emphasize is that even though globally acceptable binding agreement is not in sight we should not wait. Each and every country and each and every citizen, they have a role to play. China has pledged to reduce its carbon intensity up to by 45% in the next decade. It now produces half of the world's wind and solar power and it is growing its capacity rapidly. It has already surpassed the United States to lead the world in installed clean energy capacity. The European Union has committed to cut emissions by at least 20%, but even 30% against the level of 1990 by 2020, regardless of what actions other countries may take. The European Union's commitment has not wavered even in the face of tough economic situations. Mexico has launched a plan to reduce 51 million tons of CO2 next year, next year alone. That is equal to four and a half years of pollution from all the vehicles in Mexico City. Korea donated, devoted, Korea devoted 80% of its stimulus program to green growth, an investment that stands to deliver major economics as well as environmental benefit. India is also in the race, planning to increase investment in the clean energy sector by more than 350% in this decade. Japan is aiming to create 1.4 million new, new green jobs. Denmark is moving to, the, to be free of fossil fuels by 2015. 
Brazil committed to reducing its forestation, deforestation rate by 80% by the year 2020. Around the world, wind, solar, and geothermal energy are becoming more cost competitive. Local governments and large corporations are contributing as well. Look no further than right here in Australia. The Sustainable Sydney Initiative to reduce carbon emissions in this city by 70% over the next 20 years. These actions are vital on their own, but they can also inspire progress in the global negotiations, creating a virtuous cycle. This is a global race to save the planet. But it is also a race to see which countries and economies will forge the path to creating a green, sustainable jobs. I hope Australia will lead the way for your own good as well as that of our planet. Ladies and gentlemen, let me say a few words about the global negotiation. Once again, the skeptics will say there is nothing to show for it. Once again, they are wrong. The Bali Roadmap in 2007 launched a comprehensive negotiation that have led global progress. Starting with Copenhagen in 2009, and affirmed in Cancun last year, for the first time ever, all countries agreed to contain the global temperature rise within two degrees centigrade. On monitoring and verification, governments are working to strengthen accountability and openness through an agreed mechanism to ensure that all countries are adhering to their pledges. For the first time ever, countries have made large pledges on financing. On forests, governments have agreed on an action plan to reduce, reduce emissions from deforestation and forest degradation, what is abbreviated as RED, R-E-D-D plus. Cancun also delivered an adaptation framework to protect the vulnerable and the mechanism for sharing green technologies. This wide-ranging global process has given us important tools. We need to keep building, including at the climate conference later this year in Durban. We need ambitious mitigation targets that ensure that any increase in global average temperature remains below 2 degrees centigrade. Moreover, given that the first commitment period of the Kyoto Protocol expires next year, a political formula must be found to ensure that the robust post-2012 climate regime is agreed upon and is not delayed by negotiating gamesmanship. At the same time, climate finance, the sine qua non for progress, 
must move from concept to reality with delivery of fast start uh, financing and agreement on sources of long-term financing. In addressing climate change, I believe that the providing financial and technological support is the key, crucial, particularly financial support. The leaders in Copenhagen in 2009 agreed to provide $100 billion per year by 2020, and also provide as an interim measure $30 billion by the end of next year. I have established a high-level advisory group on climate change financing, and they made a recommendation saying that even though this $100 billion, $100 billion per year will be a challenge, it is a doable. It can be done, and it is a hand in the hands of member states. I hope that in Durban, member states will seriously consider this. In that regard, the next year's Rio Plus 20 UN Conference on Sustainable Development will also be an important opportunity. We must make sustainable development for all our top priority. It is only in that broader framework that we can address climate change and the needs of our civilization. Ladies and gentlemen, whether it is a securing peace or sustainable development, our chances of success have multiplied when we have grasped the promise of the future and acted together. When the first president of the Security Council, Australian Norman Makin, gaveled the historic meeting to order 65 years ago, he said something that speaks to us today. He said, I quote, cooperation rests on the will of the people of the world to work for peace. A real will to peace must spring not from fear, but from positive faith in the brotherhood of men, end of quote. In other words, in people, in nations united, and in you and in me. A few weeks ago, I went to back to my home village, Korea. I visited my high school. To this day, I remember the advice of my principal, principal teacher at that time. He said, put your head above the cloud, but keep your feet firmly on the ground. That means have a big idea, big dreams, but you need to be very practical and realistic. Dream, look over the horizon. Be an idealist, but at the same time, be grounded and practical. That is my advice to you, particularly young students. Be bold, be brave, be courageous, think big. The future is in your hands. Use your passion to make difference, to be a part of something larger than yourself. Don't let the cynics hold you back. You can change the world. Let us harness that spirit, that positive faith, to build a better future 
for all. I'll be with you, and you should be responsible, particularly our dear young students, to bear all these responsibilities to make this world better for all. And I thank you for your commitment, and I wish you all the best. Let us all ensure a fair goal for everyone. I thank you very much. Thank you very much, Your Excellency. Two images from what you had to say to us will stick with me for a very long time. The first was that image of beads needing to be joined together to make a necklace. We recently had Sir George Elaine here to talk about his work with the United Nations in non-communicable diseases. And it was the same theme. You need to think about these particular issues in the context of justice, in the context of climate change, in the context of issues to do with inequality. Next year, we'll be hosting one of the two UN meetings on disability. And again, you can only think about those issues in a joined up way with all the pieces put back together. And that image you gave is a very powerful one that I think will resonate <coughs> with a lot of what we're trying to do. The other was the magic phrase, revolution of hope because I think the world could do with a bit of hope right now. And one of the things that gives me hope is that we have men and women who have their hands in the clouds and their feet on the ground in positions of responsibility in the international organizations. Thank you so much for being with us and for all that you had to say. Now, we are a little time-pressed, um, but Your Excellency, would you still be prepared to take some questions? Um, I know there's some students in particular who would be keen to ask. Um, the first question is from Hitashchug, who is the um, president of the Sydney University United Nations Society, and therefore has the right of first request. Thank you, Dr. Spence. First of all, I'd like to say, on behalf of all of our members and all the students aspiring to be diplomats to the same caliber as you, it is an honor for you to speak to us today. <laughs> My question to you today. The 21st century has presented a new generation of challenges and threats, and, and I quote from you, which spill across borders and have a global reach. This year especially, we have seen the UN declare famine in East Africa. We've seen the intervention in Libya and upcoming dialogue in Durban, South Africa in November for climate change. Yet, there is continued disillusionment with the role of the UN in this new century. How, how do you, in your second term, aim to balance 
rapidly changing international norms while maintaining the original efficacy of the United Nations Charter enshrined over 60 years ago. Why don't you continue? There's a second question. I have a very limited time, uh, unfortunately. Then I will receive uh, just uh, two, two questions. I have to run. The, I have to go to Canberra now. <laughs> so maybe if a second person asks a question, then I will answer at once. Yeah? Good morning, Mr. Secretary General Ban. Uh, my name is Ristina Senikurudiri. I'm from the Fiji Islands, and I'm a postgraduate student in the Master of Human Rights and Democratization Program. Um, my question to you, sir, is in relation to the UN deployment of military forces in peacekeeping missions abroad. My particular concern, sir, um, is that the UN continues to draw military personnel from countries that are considered politically volatile. But much more, significant, much more significantly, these are countries that do not adhere or respect the human rights principles and standards that underpins the United Nations. Now, this seems to be a very clear contradiction in terms. And a, a case in point I'd like to draw upon is my own country, the Fiji Islands. Now, Fiji is currently under military rule since 2006 when it overthrew a democratically elected government. And it appears to have an entrenched coup culture since um, 1970 when we've had four, four coup d'etat scenes. The Fiji's economy is heavily reliant on UN peacekeeping missions, contributions, and remittances to the country. Now, Fiji is ranked way above Australia and New Zealand combined in terms of the peacekeeping personnel that is deployed by the UN. And since 2006, uh, 2006 December, the UN has promised not to increase military personnel to, um, to peacekeeping missions abroad. However, it has broken its promises and has continued to deploy military personnel from Fiji from the number of 275 in 2006 to now 1,200 in 2011. Since that time, Mr. Ban, we've had numerous human rights violations on the ground uh, that have been um, inflicted upon people by the military regime in power. My question to you, sir, is given this background, why has the United Nations not taken the more appropriate and stringent measure in a complete non-deployment of such rogue armed forces in respect to peacekeeping missions abroad? Thank you. Thank you. A very political question. <laughs> now I'll, I'll answer for these two questions. I hope you will understand my uh, situation. The first question is not that our norms or principles of charter have changed. The charter still remains the pillar of our action and our, our future. But simply, the people, many leaders around the world, have not kept their promises. They have not been faithful to the true principle, true principles of democracy, or their commitment to alleviate the poverty and to protect the human rights. I'm still very much impressed by the foresight of our forefathers of United Nations Charter. They have seen this world 50 years, 60 years, 100 years. I believe that 
inalienable rights of human rights, gender equality, and responsibility of the leaders to protect their people and to alleviate poverty and to save people from disease and to educate their people properly. That remains their fundamental responsibility and our obligation as United Nations. That is why we have uh, adopted this Millennium Development Goals. That is why I have discussed to you, I have explained to you at length the importance of sustainable development. Not even 20 years ago, people were not aware of climate change. These days, climate change has become the top of the global agenda. That much everybody is aware, even primary, elementary school students, they are aware of the impact and danger of climate change. That is why we have to have some balanced, comprehensive approach. We have to balance all these problems. There are many abnormalities. There are still people's human rights are being abused. It's not because we don't have institution. We have a human rights declaration. We have principles. We have institutions. But simply, they are not adhering to these people. That is why the UN is working very hard. Australia has been a model country on many important pillars, peace and security, development, and human rights. That I really count on continuing support and cooperation. Our second question, this is a highly uh, political issue. And I know that this, this will soon come to your hands, students. So it's uh, only natural that you follow all the situations which may take place here and there. This issue has been an intense discussion. There was an intense discussion among the PIF leaders. The United Nations has been taking this issue very seriously since the military authorities took power. We have been consistently urging military leaders to transform their authorities to civilian constitutional rule. That is what their people want. That is what international community, particularly countries in the region, want. Until now, they have not shown any positive position. That's quite unfortunate. And UN will continue to engage in. My resident coordinator and advisor for peace and development have been talking with the military authorities and key civilian leaders there to have them dialogue each other. And of course, there will be some pressure, political pressure. But there are not much effective uh, tools to uh, pressure. Normally, sometimes the pressure doesn't work always. One specific question about uh, peacekeeping operations. United Nations uh, has been taking very important role in Iraq. You know how the situation was in Iraq and still continues. The situation is still volatile. And United Nations staff 
must be protected. That is one of my paramount responsibilities. The senior most UN representative of the Secretary General was killed, and 17 other UN staff were killed by this terrorist bomb attack a few years ago. And this protection has been taken care of by Fijian soldiers with American forces withdrawal, that we have to do that. And there is a problem of all these political issues, whether we should deploy Fijian soldiers or not. We have been very carefully examined each and every peacekeeping forces, members, whether they were involved in any violation of human rights. And we have been checking their personal record that we have deployed around 50 of them. Because of this kind of concern, we've been trying to diversify our source of peacekeepers. And we have finally diversified some, uh, some other countries like Nepal. And we have recently deployed 72 soldiers in Kirokok. And there is a possibility of deploying some other soldiers from other countries to in Iraq. What I'm saying that United Nations in general principle do not deploy anybody who is known to have violated fundamental principle of human rights, who is known to have a record of bad behavior in their conduct of official duties. And that is going to be our firm commitment. And I thank you very much, and I hope you will understand. Thank you. Well, Your Excellency, we've learned a lot about your thinking this morning across a range of issues. I hope you've learned a little about us, in particular that we are deeply committed to the goals of the United Nations, but more importantly that our students come from all over the world, are very clever and ask very hard questions. Um, just before you leave, Mates has a gift for you that we would like to give you on behalf of the university, and we hope that you will wear it proudly. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you, Mama. thank you. We hope that you will wear it proudly in remembrance of your visit here and that of Mrs. Bunn to the University of Sydney. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.